0: And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man in return for a can can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels.
1: Lord God, we hear these words of yours and we hear the story of Abram, Abraham and Isaac and uh, these are hard words. We hear the demands that you make of us but we also hear, Lord, the promise that you make that you offer us life. So Lord, help us to hear these hard words and to hear them as an invitation to life. And we ask this in the name of your son, amen. Well, good evening, my name is Chris Myers. I'm the associate rector here at St. Bart's. It's a pleasure to have our Bishop Philip Jones here tonight serving uh, with me and uh, with all of us. So be sure to say hi to him on your way out. Uh, We are in Lent. Season of Lent. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote those words in his famous book, The Cost of Discipleship, reflecting on this very gospel passage. That's his summary of what Jesus has to say to us. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It's a good summary of the verses, but it's a poignant one to hear from Bonhoeffer himself, who lived those words. For him, the call to come and die was actually his life. He was martyred. And if he had just written those words and not lived the life that went along with those words, we probably wouldn't be talking about him. If he would have chosen the easy path, which he had before him, he could have stayed in New York City instead of going back to Germany to live under the Third Reich and do the things that he did. He could have stayed in New York, been a seminary professor, ridden out World War II, come out the other side clean, but he didn't, he went back. So these words, he says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die are are poignant. And I want to keep them in front of us tonight as we reflect on Jesus, Jesus's words to us. Um, They are hard words. The path of discipleship is not an easy path. And yet the promise is that there's life in it. Um, And actually Jesus says there's life and no other path. You can try to gain everything else, but if you don't follow this path, you're ultimately going to surrender all. So when Christ calls us, he bids us come and die. And before we can get into the come and die part, we have to get into the Christ part. Who is it that asks us this question? Can he be trusted? (laughs) Is he some sort of maniac, some sort of egomaniacal madman who can make such claims upon our life that we to follow him is life? Who is this Christ? That is the question that is at play in this passage. It was the question that Jesus asked his disciples just verses before this. He gathers his disciples, asks them, "Who do people say that I am?" They have an exchange. You're one of the prophets, you're Elijah, you're this, you're that, you're the other. And then he makes it personal. Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. And that's the right answer. It is the right answer. What does that mean, though? What is the Christ? Peter says, you are the Christ. But what did Peter mean when he said it? He had something else in mind than what Jesus had in mind. And that's what comes out in the drama of the passage before us, is Peter can't hear what Jesus has to say in these verses because he doesn't know what Jesus means when he says, I am the Christ. For Peter, Christ would have meant the Messiah, the true son of David, the warrior king, come back to vanquish the enemies of God, to pull them out from under the thumb of Rome, to get rid of the corrupt hierarchy in Jerusalem that had been compromised to that empire. That's what Peter would have thought Christ meant. But Jesus says, I am the Christ, David's true son, and I have come to deliver you from your real enemies. Not Rome, not the corrupt hierarchy, but Satan, sin, and death. And that's hard for Peter to accept. And what's even harder for Peter to accept is these words, I will suffer. When Jesus says, I am the son of man, and I will suffer at the hands of that corrupt hierarchy, that you think I'm here to vanquish. They're gonna put me to death. And on the third day, I'll rise again. See, what Peter wanted to hear was, I am the Christ, now they will suffer. The enemies of God will suffer. But Jesus instead says, I will suffer. I'm the son of man, I am the Christ, I will suffer. And those are the key words for us because when Jesus speaks to us and when he calls us to follow him and when he says, my path is the path of life. He doesn't say these things as an objective observer from the outside or a detached sage. He says them as one who is walking the road of suffering, of death, the path of the cross. He is the one who is leading the way. He is the one who is taking us to a place he is going himself. They're in the middle of the story. They don't know that Jesus is right. that he will die, that he will suffer at the hands of the corrupt hierarchy, and that he will rise again. We have the benefit of reading it through the lens of the resurrection, but they're still hard words nonetheless. Jesus says, I am going through death, and I'm gonna come out the other side into life, and I am inviting you to walk that path with me, and that that path is the path of the disciple. And these are the words that Paul, I think, is reflecting on when he writes in Galatians 5.24 that those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. He understands that the Christian life is the life of the cross, even though that would have scandalized a first century Jew to say that the life of a disciple or that life itself is found in an instrument of torture and shame and public humiliation. But even within a generation, Paul is able to see it through a different lens. Why? Because Jesus went through death and came out the other side. And that's what makes him trustworthy, is he is taking us someplace that he has already gone. Jesus is always ahead of us. We talked about that last week. Jesus goes into the wilderness before us. Before he invites us into the wilderness and to walk beside us in the wilderness, he's been there before us. He's already gone toe-to-toe with Satan. So when Jesus bids us come and die, he's saying, I'm taking you someplace I've already been. I'm walk, you're walking the path that I have already walked. That's not the path that Peter wants. Peter wants the path to victory. Peter wants what Satan offered him, Jesus, in the temptations. Just bow down to me. I'll give you the nations of the earth. Which is why Jesus says to him, What you're saying is not of God. Get behind me, Satan. Because for Peter, again, Messiah means let's get rid of the Romans, let's get rid of the corrupt hierarchy, let's get to work. But Jesus says, no, we're walking this other path. There's a slowness and a a strangeness, I think, to following Jesus. He's the one who's setting the pace. He's the one who's moving maybe in ways that we couldn't expect, and we have to trust that he knows the way that he's been there before. If he is the Christ that goes before us, then he's the one who sets the pace. He's the one that sets the tone. He's the one that sets the direction. But it makes it no less astonishing knowing that, that he demands that we follow him with our crosses too. (laughs) Take up your cross and follow me. There's not just the one cross that waits for him, but the cross that waits for each of us, that the path of discipleship to take up the cross and follow him. So he says, I'm the Christ. I will tell you where I'm going. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to the cross. And you have to come there too. Paul understood that. Got to crucify the passions and flesh and its desires. But in the middle of that call to radical discipleship, Jesus, the human one, appeals to their sense of self-preservation. If who or whoever would save his life... Okay, I'm listening. How does that sentence end? Whoever would save his life. I think Jesus, as a human, understands that that's one of the most fundamental and base motivations is survival. Um, To fight, to live, to not have life taken away from us. And Jesus says, Whoever would save their life, what do I have to do? Does that interest you? saving your life? What's your curiosity? Is it piqued? And so Jesus says, in effect, let me tell you the secret of survival. Let me show you the path of life. It's called death. It's called dying to the self. It's called giving up the soul that you are trying to save, to preserve. It's like when Jesus appeals to us when he talks about treasure in heaven. We want possessions we want gain. He's like, "Okay, you want real treasure? You want things that won't rust? You want clothes that moths can't eat?" Then go all in on the kingdom of God. See, Jesus understands human nature because he goes before us in all things. So he says, For "Whoever would save his life must lose it, and whoever would save his soul must give up his soul." And so when Jesus makes this invitation, maybe Maybe we hear it in some different ways. Maybe we've heard it so many times that it just doesn't register. Or it's just so, um, it just sounds like a platitude. Or it just sounds impossible. Or we don't trust him (laughs) that he's actually the one who's been there before us. And those are all things that we have to address. And I think that part of the season of Lent is for us to strip everything away and sort of ask those questions. Where is my heart really at? Have I followed Jesus? Am I following him in the path of self-denial? If not, why not? Is it a matter of distrust? Is it a matter of a hardening of heart? Is it a matter of having lost my way? And if the answer to any of those questions is yes, then we can get back on the path and follow him. But we have to trust that he is the one who he says he is. Because if he's not, then these words are insane. If he hasn't gone through death and come out the other side, then he has nothing to offer us. They're just nice words. Or maybe they're infuriating words. (laughs) If he can't give us what he promises, then these words are not just hard, they are uh, maddening and infuriating. So if Jesus is the Christ, if he is the one who has come to do battle with the enemies that really affect us, Satan, sin, and death, then we have to trust that he is the one who can do battle with those things. And we have to come to see that the battleground is within ourselves, that what's at stake is our souls. So Jesus speaks directly to that innermost part of who we are, our soul. That's what you want. That's what you need to preserve. That's what life is all about. I'm here to deliver you and deliver your souls. So Jesus points us into ourselves to understand that the battleground of Satan's sin and death is within us. Because if we weren't tempted, if the flesh wasn't enticed, if there weren't such things as devices and desires in our heart, like we prayed in the confession earlier, then none of those things could actually hurt us or harm us. But Jesus knows the human heart, and he knows that that's where the real battle takes place. He wants to come and do battle within us with those enemies that have compromised us as his people and have compromised all of humanity. And he says, die. He says, if you're gonna follow me, you have to die. So the question is, how do we do this? How do we deny ourselves? How do we deny the very self that we want to preserve? And on one level, I think we just all have an intuitive sense of the answer to that question. Because I think on, on one level, we all understand that anything worth having in life requires sacrifice. Any of us who has any meaningful relationship at all, whether with a spouse or a child or within our family or a coworker or a friend, understands that every relationship relies upon some sacrifice of self. If, if we aren't willing to do that, deny ourselves in some way in our relationships, then our relationships aren't going to go very well or last very long or be very deep. So when Jesus says this, I think if we get past sort of the hardness of the words, we have an intuitive sense of what he means. I, I kind of know what self-denial is because I've gone after something that I've wanted or I've, I've done something that I've desired. I think of the story of Jacob working seven years for the hand of Rachel in the book of Genesis and that they were as but a day for him because he loved her so much. Right? He was willing to do this work of self-sacrifice in order to get the thing that he desired. Jesus speaks to that dynamic when he says, the kingdom of heaven is like the treasure in the field, that the man who sells everything to get the treasure in the field. There's an intuitive sense that we know what self-denial is. And in this season of Lent, we also have been given practices or tools for self-denial. And that's what we talked about last week, that Jesus calls us in this season to prayer, to fasting, to almsgiving, that those are practices of self-denial. And there are two, I think, practices of self-examination. In the Ash Wednesday liturgy that we actually ended up doing last Sunday, the litany of penitence, those lists of we have done this, we have not done this, we are compromised in this area, (laughs) we have not loved you with our whole heart, we can use that as a tool for self-examination. The church throughout the centuries have put together what we would call examinations of conscience. Uh, When we read the Ten Commandments together, those are meant to be tools for self-examination as well. The general confession, speaking with a trusted friend, even uh, one-on-one confession, those are means by which God has given us for self-examination. Why do we have to examine the self? Because that's the thing that we have to surrender. And if we don't know what's going on in our hearts, which is the battleground, then we don't have a sense of what it is that we have to surrender. So self-examination is crucial. So we must remember that Christ, David, tr- David's true son, the warrior king, has come to do battle with the enemies of God, and the, those enemies are Satan, sin, and death, and that the battleground for those things are within ourselves. And this is something that the church, especially in the monastic tradition, has always understood. On the church calendar today, uh, we're supposed to remember a guy named John Cassian. Um, He is a lesser-known figure in the monastic movement, but he was crucial in uh, pulling together a lot of what the desert fathers and mothers did and practiced in the monastic community, and he wrote a lot about self-examination and all these sort of things. And we point to the monastics because they vividly understood the inner battle. They vividly understood that the battleground was the self, and that the enemies of God, Satan, sin, and death, were at work within ourselves, and we had to surrender those things to him through self-examination, through prayer, through communal living, through all those sort of things. But the reason that I bring up John Cassian is because he was all about grace. He's a monk, and we associate that with all of this, you know, in his most distorted form works, giving us, rightness with God, which is what Martin Luther raged against in his experience. But John Cassian, he wrote uh, lots of reflections on grace, and one of his set of favorite verses come from Psalm uh, 71 or Psalm 70, um, in his, the way that he reckoned the Psalms. But I bring up this phrase because it's in the Book of Common Prayer every day, which is, oh God, make speed to save us. O oh Lord, make haste to help us. John Cassian thought the whole spiritual life was in those verses. <laughs> oh God, make speed to save us. O Lord, make haste to help us. Because what he understood is what's in our collect today. We can't help ourselves. The battles inside of us, the things that can really hurt us are raging within us. The path to life requires that we surrender ourselves and we can't do it. We can't do it on our own unless God makes speed to save us, unless God makes haste to help us. So there is a battle raging within us. And the poet Gwyneth Lewis points at this in her poem, Homecoming, in this line where she speaks of a battle that is won by yielding. A battle won by yielding. The battle within us is won by yielding. We sang, we sang that beautifully tonight about surrender. Surrendering to Jesus. Surrendering to the one who can do the battle for us. Surrendering to the one who goes into the wilderness and passes the test. Surrendering to the one who goes to the cross and comes out the other side, raised to life again. It's easy sometimes to lose sight of grace in Lent and make it about the stuff that we do and don't do. How well is my prayer going? How well is my almsgiving not going or going? How well is my fasting going? I talked about this last week. I think part of the point of fasting is to be bad at it because it is a, oh God, make speed to save us. Oh God, make haste to help us moment. When we say no to ourselves, we're really bad at saying no to ourselves. <laughs> it's important, it's an important practice. <clears throat> God and his grace meets us in it, but we're bad at it. And it reminds us that we are weak. I want to read this quote from Caesarius of Arles, another church father. He reflected on this passage too, and he said this, when the Lord tells us in the gospel that anyone who wants to be his follower must renounce himself, the injunction seems harsh. Okay, we're not the only ones who think these are hard words. Church fathers think they're hard words too. Take comfort in that. We think he is imposing a burden on us, but an order is no burden when it is given by one who helps us in carrying it out. If God is working in us and through us to bring about our surrender, our health, our life, then it is gracious for him to ask us to do that. And here's the key phrase, to what place are we to follow Christ if not where he is already gone? To what place are we to follow Christ if not where he is already gone? Jesus is not calling us to a cross that is an abstraction. He's calling us to a cross that he endured, that he despised, the shame of, for the joy set before him. Continuing with this quote, we know that he has risen and ascended in heaven. There then we must follow him. There is no cause for despair. By ourselves we can do nothing, but we have Christ's promise. Christ is always leading us somewhere he has already been. Through death, out the other side, into the presence of the father where he will take us. So when Christ calls us, he bids us come and die. Why? Because when he calls us, he bids us to come unto life, a life that he has experienced in his resurrection, a life that he's experiencing now in his ascension, seated at the right hand of the Father. That's the promise that's contained in these words. Yes, there's a commandment there. Yes, there is the struggle and the battle within, but that battle is won by yielding. That battle is won by surrendering to the one who can remake us into his image by saying yes to the Christ who does battle with the things that can really kill us and who knows what life is and has one life for us so that he can give it to us. And I just encourage you, it's always important to keep those things in front of us, but especially in Lent, we can get get lost. We can get lost in how well we're doing, how well we're not doing, We can get lost in penitence as its own end. But when David prayed, if you would have desired sacrifice, I would have given it to you, but what you desire is a broken and contrite heart, David understood the heart of the spiritual life. He understood that what God is really after is our hearts, that what God is really after is our souls because he wants to commune with us Because he wants to be face to face with us. And this whole path of Lent, this path into the wilderness, out the other side, this path of following Jesus on the cross is that path. The path into life, that path into grace, that path where we win by losing. The battle that we win by yielding and surrendering. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you that you go before us in all things and that even now by the power of your Holy Spirit, you walk beside us. You hem us in from before and behind. You are within us. Lord, we pray that in your grace, you would show us those places in ourselves where we need to surrender, those places in ourselves where we need to yield. Lord, we thank you for practices like prayer and fasting. We thank you that in your grace you meet us in those things. But, Lord, in the season of Lent, more than anything, we want you. We want to be face-to-face with you. We want to commune with you because in your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand is life everlasting. So lead us and guide us, Lord Jesus, and it is in your precious name that we pray. Amen.